0: And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money. Markets. Life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning. Welcome to the show. Of course, it's Tuesday as we get ready to kind of wrap up this uh, holiday week. And again, as we... uh, Get ready to move into Friday, of course. Uh, that's the 22nd. Uh, next week, uh, Monday, markets closed. It's going to be a light trading week. Uh, by the time we get to that week, you wind up with uh, New Year's. So over the next really few days, um, we're about to have some very, very light trading volumes as we've talked about before. But uh, these these holiday breaks are also going to break up some of the market action as well. But again, right now, as we've talked about <clears throat> over the last couple of days, uh, you know, there's, everything's fine. Um, there's not really much to be concerned about. It's very interesting. Um, we're starting to see a lot of exuberance coming back into the markets, uh, both on a sentiment basis, as well as just an investor base, as well as the fact, uh, last Friday, um, you know, despite the fact the market's been rallying since the beginning of November, last Friday, uh, just a couple of days ago, record inflows into the S&P 500 ETF. Right, so better late than never, I guess, to get in as markets are approaching all-time highs. I think now is a good time to get back into stocks. So, you know, that's just kind of you know what, how market sentiment works. Of course, over time, investors always tend to buy high, they sell low, and when things start going up, you start seeing headlines. Why? Well, this time's different, and and next year it's going to be, you know, all, you know, uh, you know, kind of up from here and nothing's going to stop this market now as, you know, this time's different for one reason or the other. And it's always great excuses, but markets just don't operate that way. And and you should know that by now when things get uh, a little bit over exuberant, you're going to have some type of correction and then people are going to get very despondent and then you're going to have the market rally and it's going to completely get you off sides and. You know, that's the big trick with this market over time is just understanding that, that markets don't go straight up. They don't go straight down. They do ebb and, ebb, ebb and flows. And what goes up does come down and, and vice versa. And that doesn't mean that every time markets are coming down, there's going to be a crash. You know, it just means that you've got to work off some of that excess. And so anyway, this is just, you know, the, the function of learning how to, to work with your portfolio and just understanding you know, risk and those type of things. And you, know, the, and, and, you know, the basic tenet of investing, right, is to try to buy something that is cheaper than, you know, it's undervalued, right? I want to buy something undervalued and I want to sell it when it gets overvalued. And that that seems to be a, a very basic tenet that most investors forget. They feel like, when, and of course they're told by, you know, financial professionals and Wall Street and the media is like, oh, you've got to be invested all the time, don't, you know, just... You've got to always have your money in the markets. There's really no rule about that, right? If our goal is to buy stuff when it's undervalued, right, we should want to be buying things when things have been sold off a lot. Uh, When things get overvalued, we should want to sell them and take our profits and and put that cash away and wait for the next opportunity. But see, we can't do that because we're always worried about missing out. We're always worried about that, you know, what if? Right. What if the markets just keep going up? And I get left behind. Does it matter? Right. We're, we're so tied up into this game of chasing markets that we forget about the whole basic tenets of investing. I was having this conversation with a good friend of mine yesterday who does real estate investing. And, you know, we, we were having lunch and, and talking about the real estate market and, and commercial real estate and multifamilies and all these things that are going on. And it's very interesting that. You know, we were talking about real estate funds and talking about, you know, these, uh, you know, kind of real estate investing groups, et cetera. And it's always very interesting that, you know, a lot of these funds have gates on them, right? So that, you know, if there's a downturn in the economy, what's the first thing that investors want to do, right? They want to get their money out of real estate funds, right? It's like, oh, I got to get out. But that's the time you want to be buying real estate. You want to be buying real estate when it's cheap, right? But investors do just the opposite of what they should do when, when real estate's booming and you have you know, prices at all-time highs, that's when everybody wants to get into real estate. right? We saw this where the real estate crashed in 2008. Everybody was just piling in, and then it all blew up. So this is the important thing to think about when you're managing your own money, as what are you chasing? You know, what's the real goal of investing? And there's nothing wrong with having a pile of cash sitting around waiting for a good opportunity. Nothing wrong with that. But see, we're so trained by the media that we always have to be invested. We've always got to be chasing something. We've always got to have our money doing something. And that's not really the, the way it is. I mean, people that are really, really good at investing, they have no problem sitting on cash and waiting for an opportunity. They don't have a problem missing out on a little bit of the market. But over time, they're very successful because they put that capital to work when there's a reasonable risk reward for putting that capital to work in the markets. And and that's ultimately all it comes down to. Okay, my little diatribe this morning, sorry. This is what you need to know before the bell this morning. So one of the things that has been interesting about this market advance over the course of the last couple of weeks, uh, well actually last month or so, since the uh, beginning of November, is the other asset classes that are helping drive that market. And one of those is the dollar. you know, if you remember, back in July, August, September, October, uh, markets peaked back in July. We sold off in August, September, and October. And that sell-off in the market, you know, here's, here's the, the uh, bottom in the dollar back in July. And that was the peak of the stock market back in July. And then as the dollar strengthened, right, the market sold off. So we're having this very strong rally in the dollar. And that led to that strong sell-off in equities. Uh, through the very end of October. Then at the end of October, the dollar peaked in that rally, has been selling off here over the last couple of months, and we've retraced a lot of that advance uh, that we saw in the dollar over the summer. So the dollar's weakened here markedly, very oversold here. Um, And and this is kind of a key point. So if the dollar starts to rally as we go into next year, so here's the thing about the dollar. So the dollar's a reflection of economic strength or weakness. So if everybody believes that the economy is about to turn the corner, and we've had weaker economic growth this quarter. So in, in third quarter, uh, August, September, October, we had that really strong spat of economic growth, which not surprisingly led to a stronger dollar. Now we've had weaker rates of economic growth here over the last couple of months. Uh, looking at a slower rate of GDP growth in the fourth quarter than we saw in the third quarter. So that kind of aligns with this sell-off in the dollar. So if we're expecting stronger rates of growth going into 2024, right, uh, that should argue for a bit of a rally in the dollar, especially from these more oversold levels. So if the dollar begins to rally, that could be one of the catalysts that helps yank some of that money out of the markets here, some of this recent advance that we've had. Gets pulled back here a bit. So again, you know, one thing that we're just trying to look at is, is looking at uh, you know, yes, you take a look at the market itself, as we talked about here over the last couple of days, extremely, extremely stretched, overbought on multiple levels, and and very deviated from uh, long ter- longer term moving averages. So it just you know, as we have talked about before, these deviations, uh, the, when prices get too far stretched above moving averages, those moving averages kind of act like gravity and pull prices back. But you need a catalyst to make that happen. Right now you have a lot of exuberance. Nobody wants to get left out of the markets, right? So we're all piling in here at the top of the market, uh, which is normally the case. But looking at some of these other asset classes, bond yields, which are extremely overbought now, those need to have a bit of a pullback here. We need to see yields probably rise up to above 4% again. Uh, the dollar strengthens here on a rally. Uh, expectations, you know, maybe get a little bit disappointed on some of the economic data. Whatever we see, I'm sorry, some of the data comes a little bit stronger than expected. So we see some inflationary pressures um, which bring up yields. We see uh, uh, a little bit stronger economic growth data in the first quarter, maybe stronger retail sales over the holidays. That brings the dollar up on some some renewed hopes for economic strength, right? And that's going to pull some of that tailwind out of stock. So again, there's a lot of reasons why this market can have a bit of a correction. But again, things can stay overbought longer than they seem. But again, the risk here is that markets are going to pull back probably sometime within the first couple of months of next year. So just again, as we were saying earlier, um, you know, think about risk reward and how you're managing your portfolio right now. That's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Uh, When we come back, we'll get into today's blog post that is up on the website now. Uh, So we'll get to that right after the break. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. You know, I've told you before that, um, Brent always puts little notes on my, uh, note page in the mornings and, uh, I never really thought about this, uh, the 12 days of Christmas. Um, it's weird when you realize how many gifts in 12 days of Christmas are birds. Six of the first seven days, your true love just gives you birds, <laughs> right? 23 in total. I never really thought about it. You know, partridge and pear tree, yeah. you know, uh, geese, ducks. <laughs> You know, it's like, what's up with all the damn birds? <laughs> you know, like day five, you get five golden rings, then bam, six geese. I mean, just right there. <laughs> like, quick, give me birds. Give me some. Then, then people show up and they're like dancing around. They're milking stuff. You know, I've actually, I, I actually, the more I think about it, I was like, what's the whole point of the 12 days of Christmas? Because, I mean, these gifts aren't that great. Do I really want Pied Piper's piping? I mean, it looks you know, like a you video from the White House. I know, right? <laughs> It's just like, hey, let's go to the Roberts' house. It's crazy land over there. They got birds everywhere, dudes <laughs> jumping around, piping. Some chick in the backyard milking a cow for some unknown reason. <laughs> now, Whoever wrote now, that was I'm really, totally on something. Yeah, I don't know. I'm really disillusioned now about the whole song. <laughs> you made me actually think about it, right? The, the, all this time, I've never really thought about the 12 Days of Christmas. Well, I think good you get out of it's day five. You have five (laughs) golden rings. You cash those in for something, especially with the price of gold these days. Anyway, um, sell cash, buy stocks. That is the latest um, recommendation coming from Yahoo Finance. And I wrote an article on this this morning. And it's on our website now, so, so all, the, all the attendant charts and graphs that we'll go through this morning, if you want to go look at them and kind of analyze them yourself, um, it's, it's on the website uh, under the uh, Insights tab. Go to the blog section and uh, get our latest blog post. But it's interesting because this was uh, you know, kind of a, a point made by um, the head of investment strategy at BlackRock uh, America, Said, get out of cash now. Take advantage of some of these incredible things in the fixed income markets, especially in the belly of the curve. Take advantage of the companies that are still available to you at reasonable prices. So, in other words, you know, and this is something we did actually talk about last year, which was that individuals were going to make a mistake by piling, you know, just you know, great 5% money markets. It's awesome. So you go and you throw all your money into five percent money market, like woohoo! You know I'm I'm protected. The market's going to crash, the world's going to end, and all of a sudden the market takes off, screams up to new highs, and all of a sudden you're kind of left there, you know, with your with your hands empty, trying to figure out what to do. It's like, well, I've got all this money sitting in cash, but I'm missing out on the market, right? Yeah, you're going to make five percent a year in cash. That's fine for now. Uh, That rate's going to come down pretty quickly as the Fed. As yields come down, then the Fed starts cutting rates. Um, that yield will go away, but in the meantime, you've already missed a almost 12 percent return in the market just since October, right? So where were you better off? And this is always kind of the the issue, but you know the advice: sell cash, buy stocks. Certainly goes against the historical evidence. When you take a look at yield curves, as an example, that that's actually good advice. And, and so if we go back and we look at yield curves throughout history, and you know as we talked about before here on the show, we track uh, a composite index that we that we created of ten different yield spreads. And uh, these are just kind of all economically sensitive, and you know kind of entail different areas of the of the curve, right? Where different activities occur. So for the short end. Um, you know, you're looking at the one-year versus the three-month T-bill, which has a lot of effect relative to what's happening with the Fed or what's happening with credit card rates, those type of things. And then the 10-year, two-year, kind of longer end with your financing activities. So these 10 different yield curves kind of represent the economic cycle, right? Different different aspects. And so if we go back and look in the, you know, 1998, 1999, 2000, you know, through 2003 – you know, we inverted the yield curve, and and that was in 1998. And I know we talk a lot about 1995, but 1995, the yield curve never inverted, so it really wasn't a, a soft landing. But in, you know, 1998, we inverted the yield curve, market corrected a little bit. We had long-term capital management, but we never got above 50% of that yield curve inversion, so it didn't really count in terms of where we start looking for recession. Um When you get more than 50% of those yield curves inverted, that's your recessionary indicator. So just looking at one yield curve really doesn't give you a good indication of what's happening in the overall economy. But when you look at 10 of them and you say, okay, when I have a 50% break of that, that's when I'm going to see that inversion. So in 1998, yes, we had a yield curve inversion, but we didn't have the recession until 50% of those inverted in 2000. Then you had the recession, the dot-com crash, etc., so, yes, if you had gone to cash when you got 50% of those yield curves inver- inverted, then you would have avoided the crash, right? So if we take a look at 1989 through 1990. You in-, in-, in 1989, you inverted 50% of the yield curves. And, you know, over the next couple of years through 91, when you had the recession, you know, you didn't really – Gain or lose. Markets were kind of flat during that period. They kind of moved all over the place. But between that period of time, you never, you, you didn't really win or lose. I mean, you know, money market yields were higher then. So you were kind of okay being in cash. But if we take a look at 1977 as a good example um, through 2000, uh, through, uh, sorry, through uh, 1983. You know, we start looking at a period where we had more than 50% of the yield curves inverted twice. And in two periods, you were better off going to cash once you got there. Right. And so that's just happened. So the, the point is, is, and we take a look at the same thing in, in 2006, six seven as we inverted yield curves going into the financial crisis, much better off being in cash. Well, here we are today. And so let's take a look at where we are, you know, as a, as a fact of the moment right now. We had 50% of the yield curves inverted in 2019, right? And everybody was saying like, well, there's, you know, there's no, no sign of recession, and then of course in 2020, you had the recession. And here we are again just a short period later, we have roughly 90% of all the yield curves inverted at the moment. But yet the market's about to ring up to all-time highs. So, you know, is this time different, right? And the answer is no, it's not different. The question is timing. The yield curves are telling you that there's risk of a recession at some point, but just because it doesn't happen today doesn't mean it won't. Now, there's certainly an argument to be made that we could certainly have a soft landing. We've talked about it here before. We have lots of liquidity within the overall system. Um, There's, you know, uh, you know, a, a lot of other indicators that are going on that maybe, you know, this time could be different, sure. But historically, it hasn't. In fact, you know, if we go back through history, whenever the yield curve has been inverted and the Fed starts cutting rates, the drawdown um, for stocks has been around 20%-ish. So we can look back and we can say, okay, well, you know, 2022, we did have a drawdown of, 20 almost 20% in the market. So maybe we just kind of front loaded the bear market of the the Fed rate cuts. Maybe just the market front ran that. But that's not usually the case. And, and so as we start looking, you know, through through throughout this cycle and start looking at this, you know, this idea of selling cash now and buying equities that you know today. There's certainly a lot of things that are impeding that. First of all, you know, as we've talked about, exuberance is back up to very high levels. If you take a look at our net bullish ratio, this is the uh, bull bear ratio between retail and professional investors. And that's back up to levels that have normally coincided with at least near-term market tops, if not bigger corrections. Then... You know, but you know, again, there's there's certainly things that are going on, but I think one of the biggest issues going forward, and this is something we talked about last Friday, with talking about psychology, right? So last Friday we talked, we we wrote about and that, that article is on the website as well, so you know, go back to look at, at last Friday's blog, but last Friday we talked about the Pavlovian experiment that the Fed has done on investors over the last 13 years. Which is that every time there's a crisis of any sort, the Fed's gonna bail everything out. And we, we certainly saw that since 2009. That's been very much a case. We've had over 43 trillion, we've had roughly 43 trillion, and that's including the, the recent round of QT, um, of, of monetary infusions, both fiscal and, and monetary uh, infusions into the markets, whether it's QE or checks to households, et cetera we've had this massive surge of monetary push into the economy, the financial markets, everything else. And, and, you know, it's been a very poor trade-off. You know, for $43 trillion of capital invested, surging deficits, surging debt ratios with the government, you know, we've only had about five trillion you know, $5.7 trillion worth of GDP increase. So there's not been a massive translation of all this liquidity into the economy. The economy's kind of limped along. So the question is is where did all that money go? Right? We'll talk about that after the break. Don't go away. the real investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com so the question is is sell cash buy equities and disregard the warning of the yield curve inversion? And, you know, it's interesting. So we left off talking about the $43 trillion of monetary liquidity infused into the financial markets since, or infused into the economy since 2008 that got us a grand total of about $5.7 trillion worth of economic growth. So, you know, the the, the investment didn't yield a great return on uh, on that investment, right? So where did all that money go to? Well, the the clearly... It went to the financial markets, and if we take a look at the financial markets versus this liquidity push, I mean, we can see exactly where it all went and how it found its way through a variety of forms into financial assets—not just the Fed's balance sheet and QE, but everything else. Checks to households, uh, people ran out, started you know running up you know accounts on Robinhood and trading meme stocks, etc. So you know all the money found its way, ultimately, or a lot of it its way to the financial markets, and and the way that we know that is we can run a correlation between the cumulative change in government interventions and the stock market, and there's roughly about a seventy five percent correlation in those. The only outlier of that was the financial crisis where the markets crashed and we hadn't yet started those financial interventions. So those financial interventions started immediately after that crash. So. You take that one little isolation off off the, the correlation line, then right after that, ever since we started all these interventions, it's been a, a pretty close, a pretty high correlation uh, to that. So that's so we know that's where all the money went, and and we know further that that is the case because we can take a look at the net change of all these interventions between the stock market, the growth of GDP, and and sales growth for companies. Right, so we had a 200. And so, so since 2009 to date, and this was as of last Friday, we've had a 230 percent increase in the value of the S&P 500. So that's from 2007. So 2007 crashed 50 percent in 2008, and since 2007, we're up 232 percent. During that same period, since 2007. Cumulative sales growth. So this is this is the revenue that companies receive at the top line. Now, we can do a bunch of, you know, jiggering around with the bottom line through accounting gimmicks, et cetera, stock buybacks, all that to boost EPS. But if you really want to know the health of what's going on within the economy, take a look at sales. Top line can't really fudge that very much. Well, that's only increased 90% since 2007, so you've got the market up 232%, sales are up 90%, and the economy has only expanded by 36% since 2007. $43 trillion worth of monetary interventions. Bailouts, Maiden in Lane, bailing out banks, QE, checks to households, all of it, right? Cash for clunkers, cash for utilities, dry, washers and dryers—you know all that stuff. Everything we did, Tamp, Harp, Hamp—just massive infusions. That did little to actually boost the economic quality of life. Right. This is why we have we have these conversations about wage, you know, disparities of, of everything else. But but again, you can understand that after 13 years of this, right, that. It's just the belief now that stocks only go higher and that at every turn, the market is just going to get bailed out by the Federal Reserve. In fact, in October, October 31st, the market's sitting at its lows for the year. Powell says that higher yields and lower asset prices are doing the work for the Fed, and so, aka, that that meant no more rate hikes. And since then, the market has just had a rocket ship ride you know, that on the expectation. That, oh, the Fed's about to start doing QE and cutting rates. In fact, there's already estimates that by third quarter of next year, QT will be over. Fed's going to cut rates. So what does that mean? Well, if the Fed's going to cut rates and do QE, what am I supposed to do? Sell cash, buy stocks, right? That's what we've been trained to do for 13 years. And it's interesting because when we talk about all of this, this has all been driven by debt, right? We've got a $33 trillion debt bubble, you know, in the in the government, household debt, consumer debt, you know, just everywhere it's it's all debt. In fact, if we take a look at just the year over year net change in federal debt versus valuations valuations traded between about 10 times earnings and about 23 times earnings on the high side going all the way back to 1900 through 198 and about 1990. And during that period we didn't we did not really run a big we didn't really run a deficit of any consequence. Very very minute deficit. Debt to households was low debt to the government was was reasonable. and we had no real deficit. And, in, and And over that time, as you would expect, stocks traded within a range of valuations. If stocks got too overvalued around 22, 23 times earnings, those corrected in valuations. And then they recovered again. And we just traded, and, and if you just look at valuations, they just were sideways, From 1900 through about 1990, then we decided that a little bit of debt's a good thing. Well, if a little bit of debt's a good thing, that means a lot more debt's even a better thing, right? And so since then, we've been just ratcheting up the amount of debt that we hold as a government, and during that course of time, valuations keep rising. We keep overpaying for more and more earnings and more revenue for companies because as more and more debt is funneled into the financial system, it's got to go somewhere, right? So we keep justifying why we have to keep overpaying for assets as more and more of this debt has to be ultimately absorbed. So, you know, the, the problem, of course, becomes when a recession occurs. And a recession, will, a recession will occur at some point, right? The only problem is we just don't know when. As they say, timing is everything. And as always the case, as we said yesterday, a recession will occur and it will be the function of some exogenous event that we are not looking for. And, you know, this is this is, you know, kind of a key point because we and again, we, we brought up this. Let me go back to this one other chart here real quick and let's just review a little bit of history here. So again, we were talking about yesterday, about 2019, as a good example. In 2019, you know, the Fed was cutting rates back in July. We were doing this massive repo uh, operation. Yield curves inverted. More than 50% of our yield curves were inverted, right? Warning of a recession coming. The National Federation of Independent Business, all their indicators were ringing off a recession alarm bell, but yet no recession, right? And we talked about a soft landing. Then in 2020, we shut down the economy. Had a recession, big 35% drop in the market, so forth and so on. Now, the recession indicator was clearly wrong In 2019, because there was no obvious issue of recession. And, and of course, the excuse given to you by the media is, is, well, nobody could have predicted the pandemic, which is true. Nobody could have predicted that. But the economy was already in a position to have a recession. All it needed was a catalyst to start it. Right? And that's what we talked about yesterday. You know, it's all about... You know, building a fire, you've got your kindling, you've got your lumber, you've got your, you know, you got your lighter fluid on it. You got everything ready to go, but it, nothing's going to happen until you throw a match on it. Right. Or or strike a spark, you know, however you you know, rub two sticks together, or whatever. However, you get the fire started, whatever that catalyst is, that's what was required to actually start the fire. Yeah, and so, yeah, the pandemic, nobody could have predicted that. Right. But that was just the catalyst that pushed everything over the edge. So what the yield curves are telling you right now and 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 why it's risky for this idea of sell cash, buy equities, yes, you should do that right now because they're, you know, the markets are going up. There's no reason to be in cash at the moment, that type of thing. So yeah, I get that point. In the short term, sure. But all the other indicators are telling you there is a risk of an economic downturn. It just needs a catalyst. Now, whether or not we get that catalyst is unknown. If, for some reason, we can navigate the world here long enough and the Fed does cut rates and we ease mortgage rates and you know we reduce financial stress on households and all these potential outcomes that we need to have done, you can certainly remove the risk of a recession by doing that, as long as nothing comes along and smacks the economy upside the head before you get there, right? So, you know, that's the whole risk we run going into next year, and 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 this is what'll happen: something will happen. You'll go into the recession theoretically, and I'm not saying it's got to be a massive; cri- it doesn't have to be the financial crisis, right? Just a recession. But everybody will say the 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 excuse from the media will be well, nobody could have seen that coming. You know, had it not been for that, we wouldn't have had a recession. Well, yeah, that's always the case. You know? It's always the case. If the guy hadn't run into me on the freeway, I wouldn't have been in a wreck. <laughs> right? Nobody could have seen that coming. It's the way it always is. All right, quick break, come back, wrap up the show. Don't go away. News you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. All right, just getting kind of ready to wrap stuff up this morning. uh, Futures are pointing higher again, um, which has been kind of the ad nauseum case every day we just talk about the you know hey market's gonna be up again today and this is you know certainly a welcome change from where we were in october where the market was opening down every day right and you know that was that was certainly a bummer and and uh made the october holidays you know not so not so pleasant the market's under a lot of stress so it's certainly a, a very nice as we move into the holidays Christmas, markets are doing well. That's going to alleviate some of the pressure on spending for retail consumers. In fact, you know, people are looking to spend more money this holiday season, mostly because things are higher in costs, <laughs> but, um, you know, just a, it's just, you know, uh, higher asset markets that certainly contributes to that. People want to spend more when they feel good. I feel ah, markets are doing great. My portfolio's up. Things are things are doing well and um, it's awesome. So you know, hopefully this will all kind of play through. We'll have a good Christmas holiday shopping season. We'll see. Of course, you know, we'll see what happens with retailers uh, once we get to January, February. You know, it's interesting uh, over the weekend. There's a uh, clip on television right now. Texas bill lets police arrest illegal border crossers, and uh, this has been a you know a bill of hot debate as of late between Texas and the federal government. They don't they don't want that, obviously. But I thought it was interesting over the weekend. Um, Danny Ratliff and I um, went down to a ranch in southern Texas, and the ranch actually sits right on the Rio Grande. So we walked down, had lunch, basically had lunch on a mesa that overlooks the Rio Grande, and we were talking about, you know, the the problems that they have with, you know, they find illegal immigrants on their property all the time. Unfortunately, some of them are dead uh, for one reason or another. But, you know, border patrol, regularly patrols, you know, up and down their property, you know, but, but you know, it, it's kind of just a very interesting, you know, fact that, you know, when you take a look at the river, it's not deep. I mean, you can just really kind of wade across it. And, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, protection from that. So it was just a very enlightening kind of conversation. You know, you hear a lot about, you know, illegal immigration and what happens on the border. And when you actually go down there and see it, you know, kind of firsthand, it gives you a very different perspective from what you actually see on television, and and so you have a little bit of a different appreciation, you know, kind of for what's going on, and and the and the challenges that they deal with on running their ranch, you know, as well. So you know, they you know they've got issues that they have to deal with, and uh, there's a lot, there's a tremendous amount of compliance between. You know their ranch, the USDA, the Border Patrol. You know, and and like we go to a gate, like something I didn't know, right? So like we go to a gate to cross different pastures in on their ranch, and there'd be like six locks on it. And I was like, why all the padlocks? Did y'all lose the keys to the other padlocks? And they're like, no, no, everybody's got a padlock. You know, we have our padlock, the USDA, the the Border Patrol, the agricultural. You know, you know all. You know, just the FDA. Everybody's got their own lock so they can go in and out of the ranch as, as needed so again it just gives you a really different perspective when you actually you know kind of see it firsthand so i encourage you to do it if you get a chance go down the border by the way it's just absolutely beautiful country anyway outside of the cactus but <laughs> cactus everywhere but outside of that uh it's actually a very beautiful country um good place to see anyway uh getting ready to wrap up uh this morning not a lot going on uh, overall, uh, again, we're, we're through earnings season here. Today, we've got earnings from Accenture and FedEx. So, again, FedEx is always interesting because that kind of gives you a kind of a, a bit of an insight into what's going on in terms of the shipping business, right? So if they come out and say, oh, volumes are really down for this time of year, well, maybe people aren't ordering as much. But, again, you know, you've got more competition as well. Amazon's now becoming a severe competitor for FedEx and for um, UPS, So, you know, just because FedEx says their volumes are down doesn't necessarily mean that that's the case if people are ordering from somewhere else. But it's always an interesting look at, I mean, they are very economically sensitive. So it's always a very interesting report to pay attention to in terms of traffic volumes and, you know, other issues that are related to how the consumer is acting, you know, how much are they shipping um, or receiving on, on a regular basis. Then tomorrow, you know, we got uh, General Mills and Micron Technology, but we're rapidly running out of companies uh, for this earnings cycle. So uh, again, you know, it's once we we're about to hit into to blackout for companies, and uh, uh, starting next week, and then we're going to start uh, earnings season right when we get back from New Year's. Uh, already, it's, it's going to be hard to believe, but yeah, we we'll be kicking off quarter for earnings season starting in January, and that's going to help give you know potentially a lift. To you know this you know, or not, right? So I mean, this is going to be the the big case. But if earnings come in as expected, right? Um, we're about to get into that cycle again where companies are going. To, we've been lowering estimates through the month of December, so we're about to start January. We'll get to Q4. We've been lowering those estimates all during the month of December. Brought those down a good bit. So, again, we'll play the millennial earnings season. Companies come in, beat earnings estimates. We run stock prices up because of them beating earnings. And we start ratcheting up expectations for the rest of the year. And then we start ratcheting them down again. So, you know, we're going to go through that whole cycle. But earnings season will provide some support for the markets as well. So, again, you know, if you're expecting a big crash, that's probably not going to happen. Not right now. And as we were saying, the problem is, is that in order for that big crash to happen, you're going to need some exogenous event that nobody is thinking about. See, this is the important thing we're talking about. You can say, well, Lance, what about Israel? Market knows about it. Well, what about Ukraine? Well, market knows about it. Well, what about you know this or that? Well, market knows about it. If the market knows about it, the market's already factored it in. It's got to be something totally unexpected. Good example, 2008. Market's kind of going down. We're having a bit of a bear market. Nothing major. Yes, there's certainly some stress in subprime. Um, There's some stress in the housing market. And yes, markets are responding to that. We're in a a very normal-ish market decline in 2008. Then... Lehman is forced into bankruptcy over the weekend nobody expected that to happen markets wake up Monday morning and you're down 4,000 points on the Dow in a couple of days that's where the bulk of the financial crisis occurred was between September when Lehman was forced into bankruptcy in November again totally unexpected event And that's always the case. You know, and as we got into 1999, everything was fine in 1999, heading into 2000. Everything's cool. Jim Cramer on CNBC going, hey, here's 10 tech stocks to buy for the next millennium. Despite the fact that three years later, all of them were bankrupt. But, you know, everything was fine until Enron blew up, WorldCom blew up. Global Crossing blew up, uh, you know, and, and, and the bloom came off the roads. And nobody expected that to happen in 1999, early 2000. Everything was fine. And then it wasn't. And then once one company went belly up, everybody started going, well, if Enron, the darling of Wall Street, was a complete sham, maybe I better examine all these other stocks I own in my portfolio. Oh, there's WorldCom. Oh, there's... Lucent, there's Global Crossing, there's, you know, just the list goes on. And it was just one company after another, and they just, you know, as, as you started kind of peeling back the layers of the onion, there was just no stopping it at that point. So, again, you know, what causes these big market meltdowns or these big unexpected events? So and, and you won't know what it is because nobody knows what it is because it's got in order to, to shift sentiment – from bullish to bearish in order to facilitate the crash that you're looking for. You have to have this unexpected event that immediately makes everybody sell everything. I don't know what this is, but I'm out. And they're all out at one time. That's what creates the crash. And you won't know what it is. So, so if you're listening to YouTube videos or whatever it is out there that you're listening to, and they're like, oh, you know, the debt is going to cause a major crash in the market. No, it's not. Markets know about it. Well, yeah, but 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 it's, it's the real estate. It's a commercial real estate market. Market knows about it. Market's been looking at it for a year. Could the commercial real estate space get worse next year? Absolutely. This whole work from home thing has completely shot a stake through commercial real estate, at least for now, until we decide that we're going to quit working from home. But the market knows about all that. Markets already priced that in to a large degree. So again, this is this is why you've got to be real careful with these super negative views on outcomes. The market, whatever you think you know, the market already knows. Unless you see something that is totally out there that that nobody's even thinking about, and you've got a, a bird's eye view on it and you're you know you're sure it's going to happen that's the only way you are know the only thing that we do have clues about is inverted yield curves a lot of these other economic indicators suggesting a recession is likely and the fact that we have a record number of economists now saying oh we're gonna there's a guy on uh, on cnn right now talking about you know a recession avoided mark Zandi, who's never right this guy is never right Saying no recession. So if you ever want a a good reason to, <laughs> he's it. But the point is, is that everybody thinks a recession's avoided, but you have these inverted yield curves. Odds are, we'll have to deal with that at some point. But it's going to take some event. So just. Keep that in mind. That's that's the whole point of today's conversation. Uh, articles on the website with all the charts that's there for you. If you're going to go review all that on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. While you're there, make sure you get registered for the uh, summit coming up January the 27th with Greg Valliere, myself, Adam Taggart, Michael Liebowitz. We're talking about the markets, presidential election cycles, what to expect next year, how to manage your money, all those. And we'll be doing a live Q&A, so you'll be able to ask all of your questions But you've got to get your ticket now. They are selling out pretty quickly. We've only got 150 seats. It's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Just click the banner at the top of the page, and we'll see you there. But have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow with Danny Ratliff for the Wednesday's edition of The Real Investment Show.